Moshe has come to Midian, runs away, meets the daughter of Ruel, as he's known, at the end of chapter 2. And he uh, eats, eats bread with him. Kirin lo biyochalechem. Vayol Moshe lo shevet et ha'ish. This is the chapter, towards the end of the second chapter. This is the 21st pasuk. Vayitenu et tzipporah bitolu Moshe. So he gives him his daughter Tzipora as a wife. We talked last week about the marriage scene at the well. So he's married to Tzipora. Vatelet ben vayikrot shemo gershom. What? We can tell them that, but they're in the Beit Medrash. I don't know what they're going to... What can I do? Well, um, the, uh, anyway, he gives his daughter Tzipora to Moshe as a wife so she gives birth so he names his son Gershom notice that the is the masculine voice so Moshe gives the name even though she has the baby Moshe gives the name sometimes in the Bible the woman names the baby and sometimes the man names the baby in this particular case he gives the name. He names him Gershom. Kiyomar, for he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. The question is, among other things, what land is he referring to? Does he mean I was a stranger in the land of Egypt and now I'm here, so I'm not a stranger? Or does he mean I was a stranger in this land, in Midian, when I first got here, I was a stranger. Maybe now I'm not a stranger anymore. So what does it refer to? Does it refer to Egypt? Does it refer to Midian, is the question. could refer to both, I suppose. But which one does it refer to? Just before you answer the question, I'll ask the second question. This is chapter 2. In chapter 18, that's when Moshe's already left, and the Yitro goes to greet him. He brings his wife, he brings his children chapter 18 Torah says in chapter 18 that he went to greet Moshe he brought his wife this is the page 151 chapter 18 the second pasuk Vaikach Yitro Chotein Moshe at Sipora Eshet Moshe Achar Shiruchera so he brought Sipora Moshe's wife after she was sent away Achar Shiruchera and he brought her two sons for he said I was a stranger in a foreign land in the second so he brought the two sons her, they call them her sons so one question we can ask is why does the Chumash repeat the reason for the name of his oldest son Gershom it says here chapter 18 right in the beginning of chapter 18 it says he brought Gershom brings the Tzipori his wife after she was sent away and then it mentions two sons Gershom is the first and the reason for the name is given and the second is Eliezer and the reason for the name is given but the reason for the name Gershon is already given here in chapter 2 
So what does it mean? So what do you want to say? Sorry, you had something to... I think that the main thing about them is just how Moshe is in the name. They are not uh, characters in the story. It's about naming them. I agree, but what, is the, what does the name signify? Is like the question. I agree. I, true, but my question is, is it, in other words, I agree with all that, right? The point is, if in Ravan Garti, if that's what the, the verse you cite, the point then is, could refer to Mitzrayim. That's what he could be saying is, I was a stranger in a foreign land. He's referring to Egypt. He says, now I've come to Mitzrayim. Mitzrayim now I've come to Midian. Midian is a good place. I'm living with Reuel, who's a very good person. We have similar values. And now I realize, having left Egypt behind, that I was a stranger in a foreign land. I, I grew up in Mitzrayim. That to me is a foreign land. Because I, now I've come to Midian, to the house of Reuel. I realized I found my place. So in retrospect, I realized, looking back, that Mitzrayim is a place of where I was a gear. That is certainly possible. That's my take on it. Um, I realize that you could read it otherwise as well and say that Gera Yiti Bieres Nachria refers to when I first came here I was a Ger and now I feel I'm not a Ger anymore referring to the land of Midian. But if we go with the first way of looking at it which is like what I think is the better way that Ger refers to Egypt. I was a stranger in the land of Egypt then the conclusion to be drawn from that is that what's striking about Moshe realizes sees himself as a ger in the first chapter the Chumash spoke about the experience of Bnei Yisrael in Egypt as being one of slavery Vayavitu five times in fact and also being have, undergoing Inui so we have the triple Inui and Avdut and Gerut the first two of which Inui and Avdut which are the first two terms of the covenant with Abraham are found in chapter 1 in reference to Israel, to Bnei Yisrael. Vayavidu with Bnei Yisrael Beforech and Vayayayanuotel. So Inui and Abdut are related to Israel. But the first chapter mentions doesn't say anything about being a ger. So that experience of seeing oneself as a ger is unique to Moshe in chapter 2. That's how we read the verse. And also makes perfect sense because the recognition that I was a ger does not take place when Moshe is in Egypt. It only takes place once you leave, which would make it precisely parallel to Yaakov. Yaakov says about his own experience in Lavan Garti, I was a ger in the house of Lavan. He says that after he leaves the house of Lavan, when he's in Lavan's house, he doesn't see it that way because he's still connected. So being a ger is not just objectively what the situation is. Being a ger is how one experiences one's one's being there and how one understands it and Yaakov understands he's a ger after he leaves the house so this is the uh, parallel to the story of Moshe in this particular case one can raise the following question one can ask the following question the covenantal uh, formula in Breshit Parshas Lechuchah is this. Avram asks God, God says to Avram, you have many children. Right? Look, look up at the heavens. Right? 
I am, the, I am the God who took you out of all costume to give you this land. So Avram says to God, Through what will I know that I shall possess it? The question is essentially, what is the price? Everything has a price. What is the price we pay for possessing the land? Because Avram understands that every covenant is two-sided. There's no such thing as a one-sided covenant by definition. What is the price? So God's response is the price. Yodoateda, know very well. That's God's answer. Yodoateda. Ma'ida, Yodoateda. Kigeyez arachab yaretzrovahem vavadum v'inuot arabam yoshana. Know very well that your descendants will be strangers, ger, they'll be slaves, and they'll be oppressed. Inui. That's the cost, that's the price for possessing the land and it takes place over four generations three generations of suffering represented by the animals cut in pieces the fourth generation are the birds that fly to freedom that's what that's what God said to Abraham so one can ask the following question about the beginning of Shemot the beginning of this book chapter 1 mentions Inu and Abdut so it mentions two of the three terms chapter 2 mentions Ger the question one can ask is from, a, from God's standpoint if you're God and you've made an agreement with somebody if they do X, you do Y you can ask the question has Israel done X? if God wanted to look at Adam uh, could look at it and say okay, you have two of the three Inui and Abdut but you haven't fulfilled the third term you haven't fulfilled the term of being a Ger because being a gear is not just being being there. Being a gear means you know you're a gear. Moshe knows he's a gear. Gero God could have said, God wanted to be stubborn about it. God could have said, I don't recognize this as a fulfillment of my I have no obligation. Because you haven't fulfilled the terms of your obligation, which is Gerud Avit and Inu. It's clear that by contrast it would appear that Israel themselves, the Torah doesn't call them Gerim. For the simple reason that being a gear is not an objective reality, it's subjective. If you don't feel you're a gear, if you don't feel you're, that's not your place, then you're not a gear. Israel always wants to go back to Egypt, in fact. So in some sense, they never sense they're really gayrim. But Moshe does. Moshe also has left, so it's a lot easier once you've left. So the question you could ask is, does God recognize this as a fulfillment of the covenant or not? Logically, you could say yes, you could say no. Probably more logical might be to say no. But in the Chumash, actually God says yes. God recognizes this as a covenantal fulfillment. God and Israel has fulfilled their part of the bargain. And now it's up to God to fulfill God's part of the bargain. And that's the next verses at the end of chapter 2. In those many days, when the king of Egypt died, and Israel side side by from the Avodah, from the slavery, and they cried out. So the cries went up to God from the slavery. And God heard their uh, cries. God remembered God's covenant 
Him Abraham Yisrael for Yaakov with Abraham Isaac Jacob. Vayara Elohim at Bnei Yisrael and God saw Israel. Vayeda Elohim and God knew. So suddenly, four times the name of God, Elohim. God is hearing, God is remembering, God is seeing, and God is knowing. When you read these psukim, actually, there is a sense, I mean, it's very, in a way, when you read these psukim, you begin to see the degree to which the precision of the psukim, you begin to wonder in general about reading the Tarah, certainly the Torah, to what degree precision is required. There's something actually very interesting about these verses. They're interesting in any event, even if read in isolation. But when you read them in the context of the covenant, they're extraordinarily interesting and very precise. There's something very precise about the psukim, I'll tell you what it is. Now there's something even before that. There's something else very interesting about this. Israel is crying, right? They're crying out to God. The truth is, the cry here in the text does not appear to be what we would call prayer. The cry seems to be a cry of pain. It says that when the king of Egypt died, maybe because there's some kind of a respite, What's interesting is this, that the Torah relates the cry crying out to a particular thing which is mino avodah from the slavery the Torah could have said and we might have expected it to say they cried out from the from the Inui because in point of fact the first thing that God mentions when God speaks to Moshe and the first thing that the Torah mentions in the book of Exodus in terms of the suffering is the Inui right um and the Inui, the Inui is actually mentioned second in the covenantal formula with Abraham. Over here, the Torah mentions the Avodah and not the Inui. What's interesting is this. What's interesting is, in the first chapter, five, the, Torah, the word Inui appears twice in, in various forms. That's how the Hebrew language works. But the word Inui is twice in chapter 1 the word Avodah appears five times in chapter 1 for a total of seven it's very typical but over here we have two more times the word Avodah which means that you have five plus two which means that the word Avodah appears seven times which is a way of highlighting the word Avodah here's what's very interesting about it what's interesting is if you go back to the covenant with Abraham so God said to Abraham, I want you to know. Abraham said, how will I know? How will I know that I will possess the land? I interpret, what is the cost? You want to give me something, what does it cost? So God says, you don't know very well. There's a big cost. Being an Eved, being an Inui, and being a Ger. And then God adds, after that, but also the nation the nation which enslaves them I will judge and then they will go out with great wealth 
So in the covenant itself, it talks about God's judgment. I will intervene at some point. God said to Abraham, I will intervene in why? Against the nation which enslaves them. God did not say the nation which abuses them. God specifically singled out one thing, which is the slavery. And now in the book of Exodus, it picks that up. Because God's response, it's precisely, the Chumash wants you to understand that we have a covenantal fulfillment. So therefore, the Chumash emphasizes two more times for a grand total of seven, one word, the word Avodah, which is what God had said to Abraham. So this is a fulfillment of the covenant. That's number one. God is hearing the cries of Min Avodah, and God is remembering the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's the covenant of Brit Ben Abitarim that was made with Abraham and passed down to his children, grandchildren. And then it uses four verbs. God is hearing the cries. God is remembering the covenant. God is seeing, Vayar Elohim, and the last word of the chapter, Vayeda Elohim, and God knows. That word is not innocent, of course, God, because that's what that's how the covenant begins, actually. But what's God's first word? No, you will know. And here says the Chumash is the fulfillment of the covenant. It means that God is seeing the the fulfillment of the covenant, God is seeing Moses Gerut, as it were, Moses calling himself a Ger as a covenantal fulfillment. God is seeing Moshe as representing the people. Part of that, I think, is that Moshe, in the story of chapter 2, is thrown into the, thrown into the waters. So what it says, he undergoes what Israel is undergoing. He's drawn from the waters. He's Moshe, he's Moshe. He will draw others out. But God is maybe it's generous on God's part God is seeing from a covenantal standpoint God is being gracious over here even though the people don't see themselves necessarily as Kareem but God sees the people's experience including Moshe as Abdut and Inui and then Gerut as well this point before sorry before you comment this is actually a very important point on many levels first of all you get some sense as, as to the precision of this it's very striking and what makes it nice is once you see it, it's so obvious, it's not even funny. That's how I make my living, actually, by seeing it. That's it. <laughs> it's the one gift I have, actually, I see it. And then the question is, when you see it, what do you make of it? There are a lot of people going around, I see this thing, I see this over here. What was on a panel, I think Sarah was there. He sees this, he sees this, he's not going to mention the name, he's well known, from the Gush, well known. It's not, it's not Grossman, by the way. Not Grossman. But, uh, but the point is, somebody else. Well, yes, it says these five words over, five words over here. So this, blah, 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 blah. So my point was, you try to interpret story B in light of story A. Unfortunately, from what I've heard you to say, you have little understanding of story A, and therefore, how could you possibly understand story B? The point is, you have to actually understand it. It's not just connecting words, but the words are very important because the words are saying to us, teaching us that these two stories have to be read one in light of the others and this is the core, absolute core of a little ritual we have called the Seder this is the core of the Seder the core of the Seder is one main point about the Seder that the experience of, of Mitzrayim, Yitzhak Mitzrayim is actually covenantal 
it's a fulfillment of a prior promise and it's covenantal and it, it, Haggadah asks us to explore what that might mean to say the experience is covenantal but it's so precise over here Mino Avodot of course by Yeda Elohim not just the Geirut and the Avodot and the Inui not just that but also Mino Avodah and God is, or suddenly God is hearing this God is remembering the covenant suddenly God forgot for so many years suddenly God is remembering God is hearing God is remembering God is seeing and God is knowing yes sir so it looks like uh, what you say that Sefer Shmot had Sefer Breshit in front of him. I think it's one book. No, I mean it's my word. Yeah. So here is the question. First of all, how would you explain that there is no sign in Sefer Breshit that lately is going to be such an important figure? This is number one. And number two, the whole of Sefer Breshit is father and son, and son and father. Right. And here neither Amram, and no, you show how anything That's true. I would say, well, first of all, I think that when you say that it's one book, doesn't mean that within books there's that development. There is one hint about Levi and Sefer, let's put it this way. Levi and Sefer Bereshit, in the story of Shimon and Levi, what's clear by, by virtue of his name is that Levi is actually the one who accompanies Shimon. Shimon is the main culprit in the story. Levi is the one who goes along with Shimon. I would say that in the order of the birth of the tribes, Reuven, Shimon, Levi, and Yehuda, I would say the following. If we want for a moment, I don't like to do this too often, but if we want to play psychologist over here and ask ourselves the question, why the sons of Leah end up where they end up? Okay? So if you look at Reuven, I mean, the Torah passes, in Breshit, Jacob passes over Reuven, Shimon, Levi, and ble- gives the blessing to Yehuda. When Reuven and Shimon, when Leah names Reuven, she says, God, I've seen my suffering, my abuse. That's what she says. Right? Maybe my husband will, will, uh, will love me. Right? The second one, she says, Shimon, she says, God, God has heard that I am, that I am, that I am, no, not Sinua. Sinua. Hated. God has heard that I have hated. Sinua. Sinua. I'm hated and gave me this child. So the first two children, she, Leah names them as a function of her relationship with her husband, but it's very negative. Anyi is a terrible word. It means I put in this, in this particular situation of Inui. That's how she sees it. She sees that. I'm put in a situation, not, not by Yaakov, Yaakov was part of it, by Lavan essentially, where I'm married to X, and a week later, someone up my sister's married to X. And my, he loves my sister, he doesn't love me. From, from Leah's perspective, clearly she knows nothing about all these manipulations and business deals and all that. She knows one thing. I was married to this guy, and my younger sister's married to him, and my father apparently was involved in all this, and it's very bad for me, that's called Inui. That's the first child. The second one, she says, God has heard that I am literally means hated. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is, by the way, as a side point, but related point, the first child is called Reuven. God, God has seen on ye. It's a term that appears here also in Exodus. To see Inui. When it comes to the second child, she says, God heard that I am hated. So what's the difference between 
God seeing that I'm Meuna, my, my, my Inui, and God hearing that I'm hated. I think the difference is that you want to say? Yes. Please speak. I think that uh, in our religion, hearing the Shema doesn't say, see God, it says hear. Therefore? Hear. Hear that hear Israel, that God is one. And yeah. hearing and speaking and saying, Omer, Daber, all that makes uh, that uh, particular sense much more important to us. I said, should we quiet them down? You said it's a big midrash. And they're talking. Okay, well, what's the relevance over here? Tell me. What's so here, if the situation got worse between Ruben and Shema. Because if you say Ruben is, uh, God has seen that I'm oppressed or abused, then God has heard that I am hated. Both hate, well, they're both terrible hate is worse than oppression. Well, I don't, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think Inu is worse, but the same. Okay, but uh, the difference. Hearing hearing you think you think you think the situation is getting worse? Situation is getting worse. I, I disagree with you. What? I totally disagree. Good. I'll tell you why. <laughs> Here's the difference. I disagree on actually several things you said, but let's leave okay. that. Let's leave those alone for now. But seeing and hearing, that's something different. Okay. The point is this. Sometimes in life, you're in a bad place, and you're really down, and you feel very broken. You can't even speak. Sometimes you're so depressed, you can't actually talk. That's the story of Chana, essentially. That's the point, story of Chana. She can't, the reason her lips are moving and no sound, she says why. Right? I pour out my heart, I can't even, she can't pray, which is already one level good, but she can't actually talk. The point is, God has seen my abuse. Inu is a terrible word. Because what she's saying is, I didn't even speak. I, couldn't, I can't even say it, tell anybody. I, I, she didn't speak. But God has seen my suffering. The point of the second one is, that things are slightly better. Shema Hashem, she's already saying, I, you know, God, I speak. God has heard my voice. I have a voice. That's the point. Sometimes you have no voice. Sometimes, at least you have a voice. Okay, maybe you're don't have a full voice. Maybe people aren't always listening to you. But at least you have a voice. So there's a progression. And the reason I say this is, when you get to the third child, she says, when Levi is born, she said, maybe this time, maybe my husband will, will accompany me for I've given birth to three children. So that's a more hopeful. I mean, let me make a very simple point about Pasha's Vayetze. It's actually brutal beyond belief. But that's, what, that's the Pasha. Rashi puts this little gloss over it. It's terrible. Point is, maybe, she says, who knows, maybe my husband will, will accompany me. She's bowing for her husband's affection in the situation which she didn't choose to be in the situation. She doesn't know why she's in the situation, but that's the situation she's in. The third time, maybe he will accompany me is much better than hated or, or Inui, which I think is the worst of all. Abused, actually. But the worst kind of abuse. It's very personal abuse. And then we get to the fourth child, this time I, I thank God she's saying something very important she's saying I don't, I don't see myself anymore as a second class citizen she doesn't mention her husband the fourth time so therefore I say we have a, a positive movement from the worst which is to hear Inui to see the Inui because he's not even talking so at least I can voice it to at least maybe, you know, maybe now he will join up with me and the fourth one is 
I will odeh at Hashem. And the point I would make about it, I said it's like a logical point, maybe it's also a literary point, is this. this the, the hero would say for Breshi, the one who actually brings everybody together. In the book of Genesis, the primary hero in that respect is Judah. Yehud is the one who brings the family together. And he does so by offering to substitute himself for Binyamin, for Rachel's child. He says, take me instead of Binyamin. So he's able actually to overcome the, the, the rifts in the family and the tensions in the family, the, the dis- disagreements, maybe even some of the hatreds, whatever. He overcomes it and he says, we're all one family, take me instead of Rachel's child, Binyamin, the favorite Binyamin. The other three can't do that. And if you want to psychologize it, it's very simple. That Ruvain and Shimon and Levi are born to a woman who feels herself very much, you know, put down. She is, and therefore somebody like Ruvain spends his life trying to redress that. He goes out to the field. The, the women are battling. Who could have more children for, for Jacob? For Yeloch Ruvain, Ruvain goes out to the field. He finds mandrakes, fertility pill. What does he do? He brings them to his mother. It's very striking. Who asked him to get involved? It's a mistake, actually. But he gets involved. He's gonna. Then he sleeps with with Bilad, which is Rachel's, you know, the other side. In other words, he, as the oldest child, he sees himself. He's caught up. It happens a lot, by the way. When there's a, the oldest kid is the one who suffers the most. The oldest one gets involved in all the feuds of the mother and the father. They're terrible. So that's the that's the story. The story. So therefore, it, but Levi, with Yehuda's already. There's no feud with Yehuda. She says, okay, I'm, I'm Jacob's wife. Next verse says. Rachel saw she had no children, she was jealous of her sister. It's the next puzzle. Point is, she's jealous at this point, because now she understands that her sister is kind of equal. She never thought of it that way. The other, that she's my equal, she's the, maybe even the main wife. So Rachel was jealous, that's how the next chapter begins. The question is Levi. That's my point, about Levi. It's a long answer to your question. But the point is this, the first two clearly are negative. The fourth one is clearly positive. With Levi, you don't know. Now, this time, my husband will join with me. Maybe it's a hope, it's a wish, but, it, but she says it's possible. It's possible that Levi will join with me. It's possible Levi will be like Judah, basically. It's possible that Levi has the ability to be my child. It's possible that now I'm a full wife to Jacob. I don't know, she says. Maybe yes, maybe no. Judah is yes. Shimon and Levi are no. But what about but Shimon and, and, and Ruvain are no. What about Levi? So say for Shemot, it starts with Levi. And that's the point. That's the first point I want to make. The second point is this. I agree with you. That in the book of Rashid, primarily, since it's about passing down the covenant from father to son, the brothers are involved, of course, but the brothers are always in, in some kind of conflict. Whether it's Yishmael and Yitzchak, whether it's Esau and Yaakov, whether it's Yosef and his brothers, conflict between brothers starts with Cain and Hevel. In Sefer Shemot, we're presented with a different model, actually. In Sefer Shemot, we have the model both of the sister of Moses watching over him, and then when God sends Moshe to Mitzrayim, at the end of the day, it's Moses and his brother. It's Moshe and Aaron. So that's the... It's interesting that there seems to be a shift, which doesn't mean that it's two disconnected books. Obviously, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a continuation. If we just repeated the first book, it wouldn't be very interesting, but... It's a, it's, a, it's a variation on a theme, but I think it's, a, it's moving in a certain direction. But the question about Levi actually is very interesting, because going back to say for Breshit, Levi could go either way. 
and avoid the fact in the Chumash that's the point that Shimon and Levi go completely opposite directions Shimon disappears off the map in the Torah Baal Pa'ar Levi kills Shimon essentially Pinchas kills kills uh, what's his name I forget his name now um, Cosby Bats what's his name what's his Cosby's the woman what's the, his name no, no, what's his name? So would you expect Moshe to be on the tribe of Yosef? That, actually, could have been. He, he is a Joseph character, that's no doubt about it. He's built on that tribe of Yosef. The, um, the, the name of the fellow that's killed is... Uh, uh, what's his name? What's, what's, what's second? Zimri, Zimri. Zimri, Zimri. Zimri, Zimri. So Zimri is the head of, of, of Shimon, so, so Levi kills Shimon, essentially. That's a very important moment. Okay, let's get back to the Chumash now. The Torah ends, it's all Chumash, but... So that now God is hearing, God is remembering, God is seeing, and God is knowing. The Four times the word Elohim. Four times the word... Now God is determined, God had a promise. I will take them out of Egypt. It didn't say Egypt, but I will redeem them. We have three generations of suffering, and now God is ready, obligated, one might say, to bring Israel out of Egypt. But God is going to operate through human beings, and now the question is, how many candidates are there uh, who are appropriate for the job of taking Israel out of Egypt? So it turns out in the Chumash, it's a small number of potential uh, viable candidates for the job. The number is actually one. It's clear in the story there is only one person, and that's Moshe. Now, why is Moshe the only one? Well, what are his credentials for the job? So he has two main credentials for the job. Number one is that he has three times intervened already to try to help people who are being put upon, whether it's the Jew being beaten up, whether it's the Jews being beaten by the other Jew. He speaks to the one doing the beating. Why would you... Why would you hit your friend, he says. Why would you do such a thing to beat your friends? Can't understand it. It's beyond this. Can't understand that. And then he goes to the well in Midian. Seems not to have learned his lessons. Once again, he intervenes. This time for seven uh, daughters of the priest of Midian, Ruel, and they're being chased away by the shepherds. Moshe arises and he saves them by Yoshian, and he waters their their flock. So, on three separate occasions, he has intervened to help the the, the oppressed. One might say. So he's a perfect candidate for the job. And not only that, there's something else we just learned, that he sees himself as a stranger. He sees himself as not part of the Egypt, which means not part of the Egyptian culture. He sees himself as other and different from Mitzrayim. When he first went down, when he met the two Jews, read that last week, the two Jews are very much part of the Egyptian culture. They talk that language. Who made you the, who made you the judge? Who made you, this, who made you a judge? We reject all judgment. And what, you would kill even the Egyptian, right? And then somehow, they, one way or the other, are instrumental in informing Paro. So Moshe then is very different from the Jews. The two Jews, I presume, are emblematic of the Jews in Egypt. And Moshe is not so. Moshe is the one who, who has risen up against slavery. So now, clearly, God, is, God knows of God's responsibilities. That's the point. God is hearing, God is seeing, God is remembering, God is knowing. Now God has an obligation to save Israel 
take them out of Mitzrayim. So God now, this is the story of the snare, God asks Moshe if he will be the one to represent God's interests in Israel, in Egypt, and take Israel out of, out of Egypt. The problem is, and this is the long chapter, in this chapter, that Moshe has no interest in this particular job. And the question is why? He gives several reasons as to why he's not interested. Well, somebody gives several reasons, typically there are other reasons. Maybe not explicated. So we'll try to figure this out. This is a very important story because it becomes the prototype for other such stories. In other words, the calling of the prophets. Yeah. We have this elsewhere in the Bible. It's not just with Moshe. We have with Yirmiyahu. We have it with Yeshayahu. Yonah. We have it with Yonah. Yonah is, right, Yonah is, doesn't go through the whole, he still, Yonah rejects it actually, right? But with the others, it's actually some kind of, right, Yonah is, is also rejecting it. The point is, this becomes a prototype for others who are called into service, either for prophecy or for other things. We have, for example, even for kingship or for, for leadership, Gidon, why, or, or Shaul, King Saul, or Gidon, Saul says it straight up. He says to Shmuel, God is, why me? He says, I'm, I'm not worthy of this, says Shaul. I'm, I'm, my, my, I'm the little tribe of Benjamin, and within the tribe of Benjamin, I'm the least, I'm, I'm the smallest. So what, what do you, it's, that's one of the questions with Moshe. Moshe's refusal, initial refusal, to accept this role, to what do we attribute it? Is it just modesty? Is it something else? I have to assess that. Anyway, this is a very, very famous story, obviously. So let's begin with chapter 3. So you don't yes. think the fact of Moshe was uh, Egyptian in his education had to do with his uh, leadership? Do I think that... He was raised up in the He's raised as an Egyptian, that's true. Yeah, so it is this effect in him being suitable for the... To refuse to go. Yeah, I don't think that's the issue. I don't think... No, to lead. To lead. To lead. To refuse? What do you mean? No, that would be a reason why he was suitable for leadership. Because he was... That's possible. Outsider, but also... Right, that's, right, that's a good point. We'll come back to that. That's actually a very important point. There's a lot to be said for that. But maybe Davka, it's Davka Moshe who is brought up as an Egyptian, who's able to deal with the Egyptians. That, that's, that's possible. That we see in many such cases. That's a good point, yeah. Okay, that I'll come back to. That's very important. In terms of understanding who Moshe is. Yeah. Now let's begin with the story here. Moshe Kohen So we begin. Moshe is a shepherd. That's what he does. He's a Ro'er. He's shepherding the flock of Yitro, his uncle, the priest of Midian. So the, the first thing we notice is father-in-law. His father-in-law, right. So, sorry. so the point is, the first thing that strikes us immediately is obviously he has a different name. In the previous chapter, he's called Ru'el, and here he's called Yitro. It's not that. Does he have seven names? That's the Medrash. He has seven names. We know at least of three names, maybe four in the Chomish. There's Ru'el, there's Yitro, there's Yeter, and there's Chever. Right, Chovov, Chovov in Bamidbar, which, which, whether they're exactly the same person, but literally it's the same person, and the Medrash has three more names. The question is, what do we make of the, of the, in other words, why has the Chumash shifted from Ruel to Yitro? 
you know, we don't, you know, the answer, the answer that, well, there were different sources, and one of the sources he's named this, and the other source he's named that, so the biblical author is simply, in this chapter, bringing in a different source, is not an answer that appeals to me. The biblical author is perfectly capable of changing the name if the author wishes to do so. The fact of the matter is, I don't actually care where it's coming from, but the fact that it's, 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 it's basically Yitro in the story from beginning to end, or Yeter, is very significant because the names are not just names. The names are signifiers in the Chumash. The name Ru'el means one thing, and the name Yitro means something very different. Yes. Miyutar. We'd say Miyutar, superfluous. That's what we say. It's superfluous, unnecessary. I would say extra, superfluous. In modern Hebrew, Miyutar means unnecessary. You said it already. There's no need to say it. Miyutar, we say. So the point of the story is from first Pasuk already. Says the Chubish, this man, the priest of Midian, that Moshe loved so much in the previous chapter, somehow in the first verse of chapter 3, has become superfluous, redundant, unnecessary, extra baggage. And why? This is the point of the story. Part of the story over here, and also the story of chapter 18, is Moshe has to leave Yitro. That's the point of the story. He must leave Yitro. Now why must he leave Yitro? He actually loves Yitro. He loves him more than he loves anybody else. The man is a good man. He's even a religious person. He's a priest. I don't know what exactly the religion entails, but here's one thing for sure. When the daughter said, an Egyptian man saved us, his first point word was, V'ayo, where is he? Bring him to eat bread. A good person he must be brought to the house, must be respected. I want to connect to him. Gives him his daughter. So this is the person Moshe loves and lives with. And somehow in the first verse, his name is suddenly Yitro, not Ru'el, God's friend, maybe God's shepherd, probably God's friend. That's his name in chapter 2. In chapter 3, God's friend has become extra, superfluous, redundant, unnecessary. What is that about? The answer actually is a simple one. And I'll tell you straight up what it is. The answer is actually embedded to the chapter. It's very clear, but, but it's actually embedded even in chapter 18. Chapter 18, Moshe has left Egypt. Let's, let's get this straight. Moshe leaves Mitzrayim, crosses the sea, heads out for the land of Canaan, which he's been told to go to. Maybe he expects to get there a few months from now, or who knows. Short, short trip. He does not, when he leaves, manage to take a little detour and to pick up his wife and children. He does, he does not, leaves them behind. She was sent away. We don't know when she was sent away. It's what it says. She was sent away sometime later. He does, by the way, lest you think that because he has no time to do it or something, let's make this point very clear. The Torah emphasizes that when he leaves Egypt, in chapter what, 13, 14, he does take Joseph's bones with him wherever they were. He makes that little detour to pick up the bones of Joseph, Atzmot Yosef, which is a very important point, but he does not take the wife, that she was sent away, nor does he take his own children, whom the Torah refers to as her children. 
He's, he has no intention of ever seeing them again. Not a wife, not children. That's clear. But Yitro comes in chapter 18. There is called Yitro. It's Parashat Yitro. Yitro. And he comes and he brings the wife who was sent away and he brings the children. And the Chumash in the beginning of chapter 18 mentions the name of Moshe's two sons and it gives us the reasons for the names. The first reason is a repeat of what it says in chapter 2, which is Gersho, Gera Yiti Bi'eretz And then it gives us the second son. The second son is named Eliezer, it says. And the reason for that name, his son was named Eliezer. For Moses said, the God of my father help me, Ezri, and save me from the sword of Paro. One can ask an obvious question, not just about the repetition, but why, do, why does the Torah actually give the reasons for the names? The Torah usually does not give reasons for the names. Sometimes it does. But you would, reasons for the names, you would think, are significant if the person named plays a role. But Moshe's two sons, Gershom and Eliezer, are never mentioned in the Chumash. They play absolutely no role whatsoever. So why would the Torah go out of its way to say, give the reason for the name, and not only that, the first one gave a reason already. So we have twice the same pasuk about the name Gershom, when Gershom, in the, from a narrative standpoint, is not existent. I think the answer is clear. The reason for the names are not a statement about the children. They're a statement about when giving the name. They say something about Moshe's thinking. And I would say the following. Let's start with the second one first in this case. The second son, he, Yitro is bringing to Moshe in chapter 18, his name Eliezer. Because the God of my father helped me and save me from the sword of Paro. And there's a key word over there in that verse, which is very important for chapter 18, and also cast the light on our chapter. The God of my father, Ezri, helped me and saved me from the sword of Paro. And the key word, actually every word of course is important, but the word I would focus on is the word Avi. The God of my father said, help me. That's the point of the story of the burning bush. The story of the burning bush, primary, the primary point, there are many points, but the main point is what God said to Moses at the burning bush, the first words out of God's mouth, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He connects, in other words, Moshe learns something at the snap. Moshe learns at the snap who was his father. Because in chapter 2, a man from the house of Levi takes a daughter of Levi, but in that story, there's no names, and not only that, the whole chapter is about the three women. It's about Moses and Pharaoh's daughter and his sister who stands from afar and the mother who nurses him. Those are the, those are the characters of chapter 2. And the father is missing in action in chapter 2. Chapter 3, Moshe must learn who his father is. At the end of the day, the Torah is a patriarchal book. The culture is passed down from father to son. Maybe the woman understands better how it works. It doesn't matter. Rebecca understands better than, than Isaac, but she can't bless Isaac. Let's not forget that. Only Isaac can bless. The fact of the matter is, who was his father? So God says to Moses in chapter 3, 
in verse number what's it six six verse six I am the God of your father says God to Moshe who is your father and God gives a surprising answer I am the God of your father Elohei Abraham Elohei Yitzchak Elohei Yaakov the God of Abraham the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob called the Avot that's how we start the prayers I am the God of your father and let me tell you who your father is not what you might be thinking not your biological father and not Pharaoh not some Egyptian person whoever and not the priest of Midian who's a father figure to you the father-in-law and Moshe likes him none of those people not A, not B, not C they are not your father you have a father however your father is Abraham, Isaac and Jacob I am the God of your father the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in this chapter Moshe will turn to God we'll get to it later and say to God strange question when I go down to Egypt if I choose to go there the people will ask me what is the name of the God who sent you that's what Moshe says what is your name what shall I say to them to which God gives two answers in this chapter one is a very enigmatic answer get to that but the second God says if you want to tell them something concrete here's what you should say to them say to them this is found in chapter 3 verse number 16 on page 117 tell, go and say to them Hashem Avotechem, the God of your parents the God of your ancestors the God of your fathers sent me the God of Abraham the God of Isaac and Jacob Abraham, Isaac and Jacob which means says God to Moshe in the beginning I am the God of your father the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and if the people ask what is my name the God of their fathers Abraham, Isaac and Jacob just to reinforce what Sarah said, said earlier it means that Moses and Israel are brothers they have the same father so it's all about brothers these are your brothers you have to save your brothers the priest of Midian is a great guy I know you love him dearly but let me tell you something he's not your brother this is actually, that's the point of the story doesn't mean you don't love him doesn't mean he's not great but he's not your brother and you have a particular task in this world your task maybe somebody else has a different task but your task is it's like you know I'm a big believer that all people should talk to each other so people devote their life to interfaith relations or something like that I'm not against it that's not my task I don't think I have a different I got to teach the Jews there's nothing wrong with the other task great it's not my task personally and that's what God says to Moshe I know you love the priest of Midian he's probably your only friend in the world he's actually somebody whose values and yours are very similar he's someone who later in the Chumash in Parshat Yitro he's going to give all kinds of advice how you set up a system of justice the guy's obsessed with justice so I know you're on the same page but at the end of the day in chapter 18 the last verse of chapter 18 is very stunning Moses sent away his father-in-law he went back to his land why? why, does it, why can't he stay? and the answer is very simple it's embedded already in the beginning of the parsha. Yitro is bringing these two children and the wife to reconnect to Moses that's the point of it he wants to reconnect to Moses probably himself that's how he connected the first time he gave him his daughter and in chapter 18 he eats, he eats lechem with the people 
But the Torah is saying something striking. He's bringing the wife and the kids to Har Elohim Choreva, to the mountain of God. The mountain of God is where the story of the Sneh takes place. But God said to Moses, leave, leave, leave Midian and save your brothers. And now the Chumash says in chapter 18, he's coming with two children. What are the names of the children? The second name is, the God of my father help me. That's the tip-off. That's what God said in chapter 3. Which of course was the reason he leaves Midian in the first place. And now Yitro's coming to reconnect. But what does he have in his, in his hand? He wants to reconnect. But he's bringing the very children whose name signifies that Moshe has to leave. The second is clear. And I would say the following about the first name. Why the Torah repeats the first name. Because in the context of chapter 18 it has a different meaning. I submit that in chapter 2 when Moses said I was a stranger that he referred primarily to Egypt. But in chapter 18 when Yitro comes and brings the child to Moses at the mountain of God and the child is Gershom for I was a stranger in a strange land in that context it refers to all to his previous experience not only Egypt but also Midian because those are all strange lands for him. He was told to leave that. His mission is not to be in Midian. His mission is to bring them to the promised land. We'll never get there. But he sets it up for others. That's what it means to be confidential. But in point of fact, so in chapter 18, that's why he's Yitro from the first part, from beginning to end, Yitro, Yitro, Yitro. Because we know something about Yitro in chapter 18. As much as significant as he is in that chapter, he's not going to be around in the next chapter. Because the next chapter, chapter 19, is about, all about Matan Torah. It's about, the, about Sinai. It's about the Sneh. And the Sneh is the place where Moshe has to understand his own, his own mission and his own identity. And I would say something else, maybe about Yitro, slightly different, which is this. And I was thinking about this, about being open. This is an educational point about being open to other, to, to other people, to other points of view. I think it's incredibly important to be open to other points of view. But I think in terms of a formative education, I think the first step is to understand, to get some sense of, of, your, of, of your own identity. If you have a sense of your own identity, then it's possible afterwards to be open to the whole world, but you know, you're starting with a certain assumption who I am. As opposed to, from the very beginning, you have hearing 50 different possibilities and there's no sense of, of strong sense of, 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 of having a real identity. I think that's true in terms of education, both in terms of learning. It's also true in terms of, uh, I'd say, educational institutions. That good schools have at its core a real center. There aren't too many that have that into it. But, and those who have a center, it's important to understand what is the school actually about. It's not what they put in the brochures. It's not even what they say. What is it actually about? What is the, what's at the core of this institution? What is it, what's the center of it? And the point for one could make the argument that it's even possible, according to some interpreters, and we know this is true, later in the Chumash Moshe wants him to come back. Right? In Bamidbar, he says to Chovah ben Ruel, if we identify that with Yitro, come on back, he says. Come on back. When you come on back, you chase me away. No. I chased you away when you, when you couldn't be with us. I chased you away when the Jewish people had to identify as Jews. You are the priests of Midian. 
he never claims he's not the priest of Midian. He's Kohen Midian. Kohen Midian can't be in Martin Torah. That, that's the point. If he wants to embrace Judaism, of course he can be there. He doesn't want to embrace Judaism. He's the priest of Midian. He goes back to his, to his land. So, but the point is, you can, you, can bring, you can bring the priest of Midian back, actually, once you know who you are. But if you don't know who you are, then you can't have the priest of Midian there. And the, that's the point of the Chumash, I think, in many places. So therefore, in that chapter, which is prior to Matan Torah, means prior to the people standing at Sinai, and to understand who, who actually they are. And they don't even understand it after they hear it, because they make a golden calf shortly thereafter. But the point is, in that chapter, he is, from beginning to end, he is, he is Yitro. So now in chapter 3, and that's the point of chapter... Chapter 18 is referencing chapter 3, the story of the snare, which is about, I would say, Moshe's getting his own identity. Who is Moshe? He has no father. He has no identity. And God is going to teach him who he is. And you have a father. Your father is not what you think it is. Your father is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those are our parents. We have to call them Avot. The first blessing of the Shavon Ashri is called the Avot. Okay, yeah. I mean, it's interesting because Jesus also was Jesus' father, uh, Mohammed supposedly his father, was a mystery. Several black presidents really didn't have a father, including our current president. So maybe the desire to lead is also the desire to have an identity. Well, yes, I think the, in the case of... I don't know much about Mohammed, but, but the point of... Yes, of course, Jesus is more complicated. About Mohammed, right. I heard that one thing. But that, the point is that, that, that what? Steve Jobs, right? I mean, not the search for a father. In the Chumash, it's a search for identity because the point is in the Chumash, the father is the one in Genesis that passes on the blessing. It's father to son. Sometimes it's father to grandson. But in the case of Moshe, it's very striking. His father never figures in the story. That's the point. He has a name, Amram, later on. <coughs> But in the, na- in the narrative, he doesn't have... And this, uh, the sense that Abraham is committed to the Avot, which means... What does it mean to say you're the son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? It's one simple point. It means you are, you are covenantal. Now, what does it mean to be covenantal? You are a covenantal child. You're a child of the covenant. Now, what does it mean to be a child of the covenant? So it has two different meanings in the beginning of Sefer Shemot. Let's stick now to chapter 3. As we begin chapter 3, yes? So I think it's interesting that in light of what you're saying that Moshe is introduced in chapter 3 as a shepherd and it repeats it a couple of times because when Yosef's brothers come, he tells them, don't tell them that you're, that you're shepherds. Tell them you take care of livestock. Right. So that's a Jewish thing. That's an Hebrew thing. Right. The Egyptians don't like shepherds. That's right. true. That's true. So then his very vocation itself positions him as one who is separate from Egypt which is an important point let's get back to the other point what does it mean to say he's the son of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob so there are two, there are two big points about Abraham, Isaac and Jacob the small one appears I think in chapter 3 Abraham, Isaac and Jacob Torah says in chapter 2 God remembered the covenant with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in these chapters represents the ones who hold the covenant. But what, does, what is special about the Avot? You know, we have a, our Shemona Esrei, so the blessings, each, 18 blessings, we have 19 blessings. 
each blessing has a name. So the classical blessing is some of the progressive synagogues they add the imahot in the first the first blessing. That's new. But the classical blessing is called it's called avot. The blessing is called avot. Why are the avot? Why do we start the Shona Esri with the avot? Why, why do we do that actually? Why do we start the Shona Esri with the avot? Because the, what, what's, what's, what typifies the avot in the book of Genesis is the following. The avot, that's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as a group, it's the only group that number one speaks to God. Each of them prays. Each of them talks to God at least once. And in each of the three, those three people, God speaks to them. God responds. Abraham in Sodom, Abraham when he asks for a child, Chapter 15 and chapter 19, Abraham prays for Abimelech. God is answering. Isaac talks to God, right? God speaks to Isaac. That's what in chapter 25. God doesn't speak too much to Isaac. Isaac entreated God. And God is answering Isaac. Unlike the others, God answers right away. As soon as Isaac opens his mouth, by the way, God is answering. To get the sense that Vayetar Vayyotem. It's immediate. Isaac is so close. And Jacob is praying more than once. More than one time. And God is speaking to Jacob. The Avot then are a group of people who talk to God and God speaks to them. The last time God spoke in the Torah was to Jacob when he was going down to Egypt in chapter 46 of Breshit. On the way down to Egypt God said Yaakov, Yaakov Hineni, chapter 46. I will go down with you to Egypt and I will bring you back. From that point on, probably a couple of hundred years, chapters 47, 48, 49, 50, chapter 1 of Exodus, chapter 2 of Exodus, we never hear God speaking. God never talks. Suddenly, in chapter 3, we have the story of the snap, the burning bush, and the striking piece of it is that God actually talks God speaks in verse number 7 God, first God says to Moshe don't get too close take off your shoes there's a little tiny fire and God says don't get too close and then God in verse number 7 begins to speak I am the God of your father the God of Abraham the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob so Abraham you are covenantal in this, in the, in this sense that God actually speaks. You are the child of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God actually talks to you. And Moshe, one of the things that which typifies Moshe, his career, is among other things, he's constantly in dialogue with God. He talks to God all the time. He's receiving all kinds of instructions. Many are commandments, we call mitzvot. But he also talks to God, he prays for the people, he argues with God. So he is very much in the mode of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that w- that's one of the meanings of Moshe is the son of Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. One might even add to that and make the following observation about Moshe, which I think is a very true one. We'll see more of this. The point of this whole these class is to understand more about Moshe. The son of Yaakov, so Yaakov's favorite son, so the most talented son of Yaakov was Yosef. And the Chumash, this is a very important point. Okay, the blessing of the kingship goes to Judah. But it's obvious when you read the Chumash that Joseph is a much bigger character than Judah. Simply by virtue of the fact that the last third of the book of, of, 
Breshit is the main character. Kumi spends a lot of time about Yosef. So Yosef is very, also very instrumental in the whole covenantal process. What Yosef never does is to pray to God. You don't have a single instance in the Chubbish where Joseph prays. In fact, the closest thing we get to prayer with Joseph, but we have two things that are close. The first one is when he asked the Saramashim to help him. He's in jail, and he pleads with the butler of Pharaoh to get me out of here. So that's certainly not praying to God. The Midrash faults him for that, actually. But the closest we get is the last thing Joseph ever says. So lastly, Joseph says, God will someday redeem you. One could say he's not talking to God, but he's prophesying. He says, someday God will redeem you. Maybe it's a kind of prayer. God should redeem you, but it's said with great certainty. He's a predictor of the future. He's an interpreter of dreams. Someday God will redeem you, and when that happens, bring up my bones from here. He makes them swear to do it. So he's imposing upon them the oath. I wouldn't call that prayer, but it's a little closer. And the reason Joseph doesn't pray to God, we don't find prayer to God, we don't find God praying or talking, and we don't find prayer in the land of Egypt. You won't find it in Mitzrayim. You find it in Egypt in this chapter. Why? Because in this chapter, God has one message, leave. In other words, you do have God, God intervenes in Mitzrayim only when the instruction is to get out. It's very strikingly similar to what you have with Yaakov in the house of Lavan. God never talks to Yaakov without and subtly, but he, after 20 years, God speaks to Jacob. Leave. Leave, God is talking. But in the house of Lavan is not a place where God is to be found. And these parallel in Egypt is the same. That's what it means to be in exile. To be in exile means to be in a place where you can't hear God's voice. That's what it is in the Chumash. But the story of the snare is Israel's, God's instruction to leave. So with Yosef, that, that, that's not true. In other words, one, may, one could make the argument, had Joseph lived another hundred years, maybe whatever, he would be Moses. Joseph at the end of his life sounds like Moses. He's, he, he gets it perfectly. At the end of his life, he's repeating what Jacob taught him. He gets it. Two ways, that's the point. He dies at the age of 110. That's early. It's not 120. He dies. He can't do anything about it. The most he can do is to make them swear. So Moshe, though, is different. Moshe, you are the son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is to say, we talk to each other. We have a dialogue. You, you shall become a prophet. You'll be able to hear what I have in mind to impart it. All that is embedded in one way or another in chapter 3. But there's still a very central idea of covenant is not present in chapter 3. We'll get to it. Yes, please. But how, how do we know that he's going to be burning bushes in Egypt if he isn't really, is he? He's well, it's not clear. In Egypt. Right, but he's in exile. Okay. You're right, but he's in exile. But God will speak to Moses even in Egypt. Your point is well taken. But you have, for example, chapter 12 of Exodus. <laughs> God spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt. During the plagues, God is speaking to Moshe. Moshe is in Egypt, presumably, at that point. So, you're right. This particular story is... My point is not so much Egypt. It is Egypt, but it's more about being outside. Being, not being in the land. Being in exile. And God's, in other words, the two themes of exile, on one hand, 
I would say conversely redemption and revelation are connected in this book the book of Exodus is about revelation it's also about redemption the book is ending with Israel building their own their own space the ultimate sign of freedom you build your own community which is the Mishkan and you live around the Mishkan and the purpose of the Mishkan is to be a place where God can continuously be be uh, be heard right? I will meet you there God speaks God spoke at Sinai but God continues to speak at the Mishkan so you have the two things the Mishkan represents the idea of freedom from Egypt you're building your own community that's freedom from Egypt it's a community at the center of which God is speaking and that's the significance of this now okay this yes Like the concept of what? Okay. Okay. The sanctuary is a Midianite. Right. Because they have sanctuary is the Right. For the word, right. The, the idea of, of, the, of the Mishkan as a sanctuary is already found. Actually, the word Mishkan is, in English, is called sanctuary, right? Go to the sanctuary. I mean, this is the shul, basically. It's called the sanctuary. It's a. It's a it's a mikdash ma'at. But that concept is already found in the Chumash, actually, even before you get to the Mishkan. The Torah said it, Mishpatim. If somebody kills in premeditated fashion, take him from my altar, which implies, obviously, that the altar was seen as a sanctuary. In the Chumash, there are two kinds of sanctuaries, but one of them is the Mishkan. Anyway, that's not, not for now. It's an interesting discussion about the Mishkan, but yeah. Now it's so, yes. That's right. So the whole stories of Breshis were already known. Right. The Chumash is assuming, I think, two things. First of all, it assumes. I'll come back to that point in the future. But the Chumash assumes, on one hand, when God says to Moshe, "I am the father. I am the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob." assumes that Moshe knows, has heard of these names. On the other hand, what's clear in the Chumash is that in this story of the Steh, God is withholding certain pieces of information from Moshe he doesn't know. What doesn't appear in chapter 3 or 4, no, that also doesn't, but what doesn't appear is the, the word covenant. God does not mention to Moshe the idea of the covenant yet. The covenant is mentioned later. And we'll get to that, understand that. In any event, let's start now with chapter 3. Now, chapter 3. Okay, so. O Moshe, how you are, O Adson, Yitro, Chotero, Kohen Midian, fine. Vayin Ahegat Adson, Vayin Hagat Adson, Achar Midbar, Vayavo, Harohim, Chorei, but Moshe is watching the flock, and he brings the flock to the edge, into the wilderness. He comes to the mountain of God in Chorev. How he comes to the mountain of God, why he ends up in the mountain of God, is this an unconscious choice that he's making, or it's just an accident? The Chubbish doesn't tell us. Is it something that Moshe is somehow drawn to, this place? Or is it whatever? Who knows? We'll never know. We, what we do know is he ends up at this place. He ends up at the mountain of God. Vayar Malach Hashem Elav Bilabat Eish Bitoch Hasneh. 
ויער בידי הסנה בוער באש, כי הסנה איננו הוקם. So it says that the angel of God appeared to Moses from amidst the fire from a snare. Snare is a little bush. And Moshe saw, Vayar, he saw, Hinea snebo eba eish, Vinea ineno ukao. He sees a very strange thing that this bush is burning but is not consumed. Vayomen Moshe, Osura novi are, etamarea vadoraze. Moshe said, I must turn aside and see this, this amazing thing. Why this snare is not consumed? Why does it keep burning? Why doesn't it burn out? God saw that Moses had turned aside to see. That God spoke to Moshe from amidst the snare. So there's some interesting features to the story over here. First of all, that one thing is clear from the story. Moshe is not prepared for any kind of prophecy. Otherwise, you wouldn't need the gimmick of the snap. It gets Moshe's attention somehow through this, through this device of this bush that burns but is not consumed. The second point that's obvious is that unlike anybody else we've seen in the Torah, he has a kind of intellectual curiosity. He's curious about this. This is strange. He contradicts what I learned in my earth science class or something. I mean, why? He's an intellectual bent to him. The Ramah picked this up and ran with it to extremes, okay? But there's something about it. He's, he's interested in understanding. He wants to understand. That's something I think that is true of Moshe throughout his life. He always wants to understand. He always, what is your name? What is your being? What is your essence? Show me your glory. All these kinds of questions. Why are you fighting? Why what? Why are you fighting? Why are you, why are you fighting? That's a rhetorical question, right. But the point is, the questions I mentioned are not actually rhetorical. I mean, it's, it's, he actually wants to understand. What is your name? Is that an innocent question? It says, because our names are accidents, but the names in the Torah are descriptions of your essence. What is your essential being, Moshe says to God? In any event, those are two points over here. Intellectual curiosity is one thing. And uh, he has no experience with God, but none whatsoever doesn't know from God but he turns aside to see and when God sees that Moshe has turned aside to see to see, to understand God called from the midst of the snare Moshe, Moshe Moshe, Moshe and Moshe says Hineni that Moshe, Moshe and Hineni the double core of the name and Hineni has appeared twice before in the Torah first at the binding of Isaac that's one and secondly Jacob going down to Egypt God said, Yaakov, Yaakov, Vayomer Hineni, and now we have Moshe, Moshe Hineni. Minimally, what we take from that is that this is a story of great significance. Because the binding of Isaac and Jacob going down to Egypt are maybe two of the great turning points in Sefer Breshit. Jacob going down to Mitzrayim because of the exile, the fulfillment of the covenantal promise, and Jacob accepts upon himself the suffering. Hineni. He knows what he's getting into. We did it once before when he went to Laban's house. So the true fulfillment of the covenantal promise. The binding of Isaac is the choosing of Isaac. Passing on the covenant. And now Moshe, Moshe, Vayomer Hineni, that's very striking. Secondly, 
it's exactly parallel to Jacob going down to Egypt. Not just in Moshe, Moshe, Hineni, but in terms of what follows as well. It means that Jacob going down to Mitzrayim was the beginning of the exile. And the story of the snare marks the end of the exile. Somehow in this story, it's not going to be so simple, but somehow through the story, Israel was going to leave Egypt. You should not forget the fact the man's name is Moshe, the one who draws out. So that's the second point. As far as what the snare itself represents, I mentioned before what I believe is the core idea of the burning bush. There's more than one. These images carry with them different significances. It's not necessary to assume it means just one thing. It can refer to many things. But the point, I think, is that it could refer to the suffering. The burning could be the suffering of this little shrub which is, represents Israel. That's a possibility. And God is with Israel in their suffering is another possibility. But what I would prefer to say is that the primary significance of the story which takes place at Sinai is this that God has not spoken in so many years God has not talked in so many years God doesn't speak one might even think God will never speak we haven't heard God's voice in so many years and suddenly God speaks that's the significance of this there for hundreds of years God has not spoken and now God is, speaks in this, it's okay it's not Sinai the great fire it's a tiny fire, it's a flame, but God is very present. The point of the story then is, the message is that I am, I am still around, I exist, I am here, and therefore, I'm, and I plan now to, to try to make a difference, to do something. I'm going to choose you, Moshe, to do it. But the idea that the absence of God, we suddenly realize through the snare that prior to this story, we haven't heard God's voice. Because when you read the Chumash, you don't take notice of it. But now we know that what? what's actually the last time that God spoke? Go back, go back in the pages. It's when Jacob went down to Egypt a couple hundred years ago. Then God said, Yaakov, Yaakov. And the answer was, Hidei. That's a very important point. Now maybe we'll see if we'll pick up on this idea of God's absence. Or that God present in a diminished form is a very important element of the snare. The one who understood this, who interpreted this way, way, way before I did, is the author of Sefer Shmuel. The author of the book of Shmuel understood it this way. Of course, he takes it and does amazing things with the story. But at its core, that's what the story is about. It's not like God is dead. God is, not, God, is ready, God is around. God has chosen not to speak. But God now begins to speak suddenly to an unprepared Moshe. That's the story of Sefer Shmuel, when God begins to speak to Shmuel, whose character is fashioned based on Moshe. I would say one other point before we stop, which is this. The Torah has Moshe saying Hineni. What does Hineni mean? Hineni is a contraction of two Hebrew words, Hineyani, I am present. Hineni means, both in the case of Abraham and the case of Jacob, the same thing. God tested Abraham. God said, Avraham, Hineni, I am present. I am present means I am present to do your bidding. Abraham does not know what God has in mind. He's already said yes. Same thing with Jacob. Jacob, Jacob, Hineni, means whatever you say. You're going down to exile, 
you're not going for a few days Joseph will be there when you die the exile is beginning and Jacob Jacob don't be afraid which means be afraid of course don't be afraid but Jacob already says Hineni and that's a very important point in chapter 3 chapter 4 Moshe resists this command the whole time he has a million excuses not to go except for one thing he already said yes that's a very important point he said yes but before he knew what it was he said yes so his, all his refusals have to be understood in the context you already agreed we know he's going to say yes he actually said yes he has to keep his word that's what Hineni means Hineni means it's a matter of trust I, I trust you that is so therefore I say yes ask me whatever you want you know what I mean some people a few people you say that too but there's some people in this world I have to ask you something whatever you say whatever you say because there's such a deep connection and that's what Moshe says here he said he named something within him if he asked him to explain he couldn't even explain it to you in fact he says no the whole time get someone else someone's better I can't there's no excuses but there's a but the inner Moses has said yes already that's actually I think a very important point so I want to make one announcement next week I will not be here hopefully I'll be in Israel I have a, we have an excellent sub next week uh, Dr. Aaron Kohler He's oh, you will, you will have, a have a class I don't want to miss class it's possible Aaron Kohler maybe some of you heard him teach he's quite good and he's, uh, he's many areas of interest he's a lot of basically Bible is one of them he does a lot of compar- comparative Near Eastern stuff and he was a teacher now he's the dean of Yeshiva University but he's, he'll be here uh, he'll be here teaching next week on, uh, on Thursday okay He'll talk about the motion, but we'll pick up. I'll, I'll get. He'll fill me in what he did. I want to repeat, and then we'll move forward with the with the snap. He's not going to do the whole snap story in one week in any event, but I don't want to duplicate. Okay, we'll stop in. Yes. Why did Abraham say he did? Why did he? I just think of Yaakov because here he's miserable and things. Joseph and Jacob, all the time he's alive, he's like, okay, that's it, whatever you say, I know you're here for you. Abraham, he didn't have anything, I didn't catch his threat for him. Why didn't he say anything? I think it's what the Chumash says. He, 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 he says in chapter 15, He simple. He believes that he is, must do what God commands him to do. He believes that God's command at the end of the day is good. Whether it's good because God says it or it's good or God says it because it's good, Plato's conundrum, I don't know. But it says straight up. He believes that when God tells you to do something, you're required to do it. He has faith. He doesn't question it. He says yes beforehand. And he doesn't question it afterwards either, by the way. He didn't say, what, my son, my only son? He sets out to go. So he doesn't question it.